Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Yeah, there should be some passion. This doesn't have to be boring. Boring, boring. Hey, one thing the game needs is more people like you. You, you. Still have grown men run around tight pants. It's Mookie Betts. It's Daniel Bard. It's Steve Aoki. Here's Salt Lamakia. This is Brock Holt. Hey, this is John Lester. Baseball is baseball. Baseball isn't boring. Welcome to Baseball Isn't Boring. Here's your host. Rob Radford. There's a lot I want to get to because because one of the things that I just mentioned in another podcast was uh, I keep referencing you. You should copyright or trademark some of the things that you say because I steal them all the time. I remember the last time you were on, we were talking about splitters, split finger fastballs, and you were talking about how it's one of the most underused pitches or or teams are a little bit paranoid because of injuries where like there's been no proof of that. Um and I don't know, I don't know how I, what player, what free agent pitcher I could have ever had thought of when I was talking about that. But um, I guess first thing, I like, it, since we last talked, which was during spring training, has that changed at all? Has has that changed? I know this wasn't how I was going to start with this whole, like, hey, give me the split finger take, but it's on top of mine. Has that changed at all? It hasn't changed at all. You know, we have a joke. We, we just call it splitter season. And uh, all, all the teams and all the coaches that are scared of splitters, we'll, we'll take all the pitchers that can throw splitters all day long. Uh, it's still the most underutilized pitch. It's still the most effective pitch. And uh, I love that combination. So you're, you're out there looking for those pitchers. Uh, a lot of them tend to be the Japanese pitchers where they have no fear of the pitch. And it's a big part of their baseball culture. Uh, and they have the anatomy to really throw it. Uh, and so, you know, you see a lot of good pitchers come over and dominate with the split finger and the Kevin Gosmans of the world uh, who aren't afraid to throw it go out and just crush the league. Uh, and so it's I'm a big fan. I always will be. So you, you talk about sort of the, the Japanese pitchers using it a lot. Um, I don't know how much experience you've had with the – obviously they throw it a lot over there, but the ball changes – and and we've seen examples of adjustments and and not being able to adjust. How how much of a big a, a difference is that? Obviously, we had Senga. Senga is a good example of this, right? Um, how much of an uh, of an adjustment when you have a pitch that's so prevalent somewhere, but then you take then you change what you, the equipment that you have to use that pitch is that overstating it or is that a very real challenge? You know, I went out to to dinner with Senga last year, and we were trying to recruit him to San Francisco, and. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted him because of the ghost fork. And I actually think the splitter gets better coming from Japan over the U.S. Because to me, to me, the ball is a little, little bigger. 
uh, it's very, very slight, uh, but I think it actually enhances the split finger because your fingers are almost a tick wider, uh, which, which accentuates all the characteristics of the pitch. So I think, I think the Japanese pitchers actually have an advantage going to the U.S. ball, uh, versus the other way around. That, that concept comes up every time you're talking about a Japanese pitcher. Uh, but I think it's actually an enhancer as opposed to something that, that takes away from their skill set. So, so when you're sitting across the table at Chili's, in San Francisco or whatever it is with Senga, like when you say that to him, does does did you get surprise? I mean, or relief, or because I, I, if I was a Japanese pitcher coming over, I mean, that was what that would be one of the things I would like love to hear, right? Yeah, and all the Japanese pitchers, there, there's a sneaky underground driveline culture. They do a good job with the Japanese pitchers. Uh, they don't really broadcast over there that they're working with driveline, uh, but a lot of them do, and so they get exposure to the U.S. baseball. Uh, and so I think they already kind of know how it's going to come off their fingers. Um, but in somebody like Sanga's case, you know, you see it come over and uh, like other Japanese pitchers before him and, and it just dominates uh, it, and it stays a really good pitch and potentially even gets better because there's just so much less um, frequency with, with the U S hitters as far as seeing it. It's not something that's taught in, in younger U S baseball, amateur baseball, and so I think just the inability to recreate the pitch with pitching machines, et cetera, just makes it so much better once they get over here. Again, not the road that I was going down, but this is how our conversations usually end up. We go to one to the one to the one. Um, so Senga adjusted his game a little bit since he came over. And watching him, obviously, he didn't land with you guys with the Giants. Um, but watching his game from a distance – what was your takeaway? Because he, where he landed was pretty good, man. Like when you finish in the Cy Young voting, you've had a pretty good year. What was your takeaway from from the guy that you recruited to the guy who ended up uh, pitching in September? Yeah, I think I, I was always a big fan of his, and I, I'm a big fan of a lot of the Japanese pitchers and their style. And you see them dominating the World Baseball Classic, and they just bring a unique skill set to the table between the mobility and the grace at which they move in their mechanics, unique styles. They have pauses and hitches in their deliveries. You know, they throw the split finger. Some of them throw five to seven pitches, which is a bigger arsenal than a lot of U.S. pitchers. Uh, and so I, I thought he did great. Uh, probably my favorite memory uh, of Senga is that uh, he's extremely health conscious. And so it doesn't drink alcohol. And so we had this uh, three-hour-plus dinner with his agent, Joel Wolf down in uh, Redondo beach. And the amazing thing was I've never seen so much water consumed in one meal. We had, you know, it was Forrest Gump style. I mean, people were using the restroom all night long because <laughs> everybody was very aware that he wasn't drinking alcohol. So we were just crushing bottles of water and <laughs> nobody could stay at the table for more than 20 minutes. So it was just this endless parade to the restroom, but uh, that it just proved to me like how dedicated he was to his craft to his health, to his physicality. He was going to driveline. He was determined to come over and be a really, really elite major league pitcher. Uh, so kudos to him. And uh, he's he's a fun one to watch. When you, when you watch, we go back to the WBC to see these guys. And I would imagine you watched it pretty intently because, again, you're familiar with it. Um, what can we take away from that? So, you know, I was, Brian, I was having this conversation and, and, you know, this is what we do, right? We don't know these guys. So we go on YouTube and, oh, my goodness, look at it. He struck out Mike Trout. Or, but we also have to remember it's March. We also have to remember it's a small sample size. 
But is there anything we could take away from sort of that glimpse in time, you think, from the pitcher's perspective? I think it shows what they're capable of in a playoff-type atmosphere where the, the sample size is smaller. And, you know, me having pitched for Team USA against Cuba and the international sphere, so, some teams and some pitchers are just built for that environment. And I think a lot of those guys rise to the occasion. And because they throw unique arsenals and unique pitches, uh, I think what they bring to the table actually gets better in the postseason. And I think that's part of what you see in the World Baseball Classic. Whereas I think some of the U.S. players struggle with it a little bit more because they benefit from either a long major league season or a seven-game series. Whereas when it's sudden-death baseball, uh, different elements and different things play up. And kind of that unfamiliarity with what with how they pitch and the types of pitches they throw, I think, I think benefits the Japanese team. Uh, but it also shows you what they could do for a major league team in the postseason. I'm going to tell you, I promise you, Brian, I did not go into this wanting to, to ask you about Japanese pitchers. I promise <laughs> you. But I'm going to ask one more question. Well, so because you get you again, you have a perspective which I think is unique. And um, we talk about you talk about the split being okay, this is in favor of these guys coming over. And I've seen plenty going back to Daisuke coming over. I, I referenced, uh, I called the game, uh, Sawamura, you know, his first game in, in Port Charlotte, and it was so uncomfortable. New ball, new mound, everything else. For you, like, what is the biggest adjustment for these guys who are coming over that you've experienced? I think they do a good job of being surrounded by support staff. It's usually an interpreter, some kind of PT, uh, massage assistant, just to keep their body in check. Massages are a huge part of uh, the culture over there. If you don't get a massage after practice every day, it's it's almost an insult. Uh, but I think the hardest adjustment is in Japan, you pitch one day a week. Uh, and there's a, there's a standardized off day. So it, it really replicates the current minor league season where it's six days on, one day off, uh, the way that we've gone in the minor leagues. And so when you start to go to a five-day workload, a five-day rotation, I think that's the biggest struggle they experience is that's not how it works over there. Uh, you tend to practice at their facility and and not actually travel with the team if you're a starting pitcher. And then you you jump on the train and go meet up with the team the day before, make your start once a week, and then as soon as you're done, you take the train back to their practice facility and get a lot of work done on your body, work out, stretch, run, cardio, and get all that. And it, it's a much more relaxed cycle. Uh, so I think the, the travel, depending on what team you're on, uh, you know, unique things like, so Colorado is elevation, Chicago has the day game, Seattle has all the travel. Uh, so there, there's elements that they've never been exposed to that I think in combination with the five-day rotation can be much more physically demanding and they have to get accustomed to it. 